running out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. The Hello, everyone. My name is Laini Hampson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School, on WBAI Radio 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. My guests this week are Navid Hassan, a new member of the Panel for Educational Policy, who's been involved in helping the thousands of refugee children who are now enrolled in New York City public schools. He'll tell us what the DOE is doing to support these students and whether he thinks that's sufficient. Then we'll talk to Cassie Cresswell, the executive director of Illinois Families for Public Schools, who will update us on the fascinating mayoral election in Chicago, where a former Chicago public school CEO and corporate reformer, Paul Vallis, will be facing off against a former public school teacher and organizer, Brandon Johnson. But first, some local news. I was sad to see the amazing disability advocate named Judith Human died yesterday. She had polio as a baby, used a wheelchair all her life, and at five years old was excluded from attending New York City public schools, who claimed the wheelchair was a fire hazard. Her family sued, and they finally let her enroll. Later, she had to sue the DOE again to be hired as a speech therapist in our public schools when they made the same false claim again. She led the national movement to change the federal laws on disability rights, was appointed Assistant Secretary of Education under President Clinton, and then led the movement for disability rights internationally after being hired at the State Department under Hillary Clinton. I'll put her inspiring obituary in the resource section of the podcast and of WBAI. Proposed amendments to the new five-year capital plan for schools were released this week. They showed cuts to new capacity of $2.3 billion, and the actual seats funded to be built cut by over 21,000 compared to the plan adopted in June 21. This is especially unacceptable given over 300 students attend overcrowded schools, and the city is mandated to start lowering class size next fall. Hearings on the school operating and capital budget will be held on March 15th. And next week on Tuesday at 11 a.m. this Tuesday, there'll be a rally organized by the People's Plan and other advocacy groups, including Class Size Matters, in front of Tweed, the DOE headquarters, to protest cuts to the city budget next year. I'll put links to announcements about these events as, as well in the resources section of the podcast and WBAI. Now let me introduce our first guest, Navid Hassan, a public school parent, a new member of the Panel for Educational Policy, and an advocate for the student refugees in our schools. Welcome, Naveed. Thank you for having me, Lanny. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, especially since you have such a wealth of knowledge about our New York City public schools and the history of the system. So, Naveed, you were just elected by Manhattan parent leaders to be their representative on the Panel for Educational Policy, which is the New York City School Board. I think you've participated in two PEP meetings so far. Is it what you expected? Uh, I was previously elected to the school board for my district, uh, CEC3, which is the Community Education Council. So many of us used to attend uh, PEP meetings in that capacity. Uh, The biggest surprise when I started in PEP was actually the responsibility as a trustee for the Board of Education Retirement System. 
And that was something that's not obvious when you go to the regular PEP meetings, but it takes up probably 50% of my administrative time in terms of the documents we have to read and the meetings to attend. So that, that was the biggest surprise, a new thing for me. So how did you become interested in the, in the, the needs of immigrant and refugee students? That's, that's a very personal issue because my wife and I are both immigrants uh, and almost all of our circle of friends and family are in the same um, sort of bucket of people. Uh, on top of that, my wife came uh, to the United States as a refugee and a public school student herself. And we're never going to forget the kind of generous support uh, that was provided by amazing people and organizations at the time. So we've always been interested in paying back that help in the form of public service. And your wife is from Ukraine, is that right? She's from Kiev in Ukraine. She came in 93 as, as a refugee from the breakup of the Soviet Union. And you, you came from? I'm an immigrant from Pakistan, and uh, I came in the early 80s uh, and also did my entire schooling in Brooklyn uh, public schools. And so you're educating your son at PS145, which has dual language program with both Russian and Spanish. Is that right? So PS145, the Bloomingdale School is a Manhattan Title I public school. Uh, it's located in Manhattan Valley. And historically, that neighborhood is a Spanish-speaking neighborhood. Lots of people from Puerto Rico and the Dominican Republic. And they, they had a longstanding Spanish dual language immersion program. Uh, my wife and I and about 15 other families helped start uh, to help bolster the enrollment of the school, a Russian dual language program, which is now more than 150 kids. Uh, and the school is bursting at the seams. But yes. So can you describe what happened at PS145 with the influx of refugee kids this year? How many new students has your school gotten and how has that affected conditions in the school? So there's there's two parts to this story in terms of the, the, the arrivals of new students. When the war in Ukraine started uh, last February, we immediately sprung into action because it was family connection and received uh, a few, a dozen or so uh kids who are war refugees uh, in last spring and then later in the summer and this year, we have political asylees and exiles from the Russian Federation and then a lot of other spillover effects in the former Soviet Union, Russian-speaking countries. Uh, there's probably 30 to 40 family students in the school in that category. And there's 70 to 80 kids from Spanish-speaking asylum seekers that came on the buses from Texas uh, starting in August and still continuing to this day. Uh, so that is definitely has made a very uh, amazing amount of uh, humanitarian relief effort situation at the school. Uh, the enrollment is bursting at the seams. But because we had sort of a community in place that was internationally minded, had been through this experience themselves, uh, is a Title I school with lots of families already pre-existing in temporary housing, living in shelters. Uh, it was sort of a perfect location for the kids to land. And, and I think we're doing a pretty great job and being active as parent volunteers, teachers, and administrators. And which countries in Latin America uh, did the refugee kids come from? Predominantly, they're from Venezuela and Colombia in South America. And so um, when I visited your school um, a few months ago, um, I noticed that there was tremendous efforts on the part of parents and teachers at the school to really help these families. Can you, can you describe some of those efforts? Yeah, absolutely. So it was probably, uh, especially anyone who comes in as a refugee uh, to a new country, uh, they, they, they have nothing. They bring with them just the clothes on their back. Sometimes not even that. There were children without shoes. There was a newborn baby that was born on one on the trip from Texas to here. 
that was just the most precious and moving situation. So we had to find diapers, uh, baby formula, uh, all of the supplies that a new a new mom would need, uh, but in a place where there's no support structure for her. Uh, uh, we we did all things like finding, figuring out how to get documents for these new arrivals uh, because their their paperwork is taken away from them in Texas and they came here expecting something but having really nothing in place because they were misled by by the government of Texas when they were sent here. So if you can just imagine someone teleporting into New York City with nothing with them, what would they need? Everything. So we had to work on all of those things all at once. I was really impressed because the teachers had actually volunteered to do the laundry for some of these families who were put in shelters and in hotels without any access to washing machines. Is that right? Yeah. So the hotels, while great, they serve a population normally for tourists. So they're not really geared towards long-term stays. They have no uh, accessible laundry facilities. There's no kitchen uh, area for the families to use. All the families are in a single room with their family unit, but there's no privacy. So one one of the important things to us was that no one be able to tell which of the kids are new arrivals in in, in this situation. So to, to make them blend in in a way that they can uh, more easily process the trauma that they've been through, and then hopefully uh, address their teaching and learning needs, so that they can they can sit in the same classes as as our as our children. And uh, that 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 sort of has been the main driving force of all the teachers and what what they do. The teachers in public schools are are angels. They're some of the most amazing human beings. Uh, they do much more than is formally required of them. And uh, and I'm always worried as a parent and a parent leader to ask them of to do more to, to do anything honestly because they always say yes so I don't want them to get burned out uh, and uh, they're already in a position of of, of such uh, loving care for our kids but they noticed that a lot of the kids had soiled clothes and and we knew that they had nowhere to wash them so on a weekly basis many ten to fifteen teachers uh, including the school principal were taking home bags of laundry. Uh, to, to personally wash at home and bring back uh, on Monday so that no one would sort of stand out with having clothes that aren't clean. That level of commitment is really incredible. Um, now you have a washing machine that's been installed, a washer and a dryer installed in the school. Is that all right? Yeah, thanks to uh, a lot of sort of the advocacy on parts of parents and local elected officials. Uh, and I'd especially like to thank Council Member Gail Bloor. Uh, of the Upper West Side, uh, we got a laundry, two laundry machines installed by uh, the Department of Education in, in a newly uh, rehabilitated space that's accessible to anyone to use. And actually, one of the main ways it's being used is by the parent coordinator. They notice sometimes a kid has still has dirty clothes, uh, and they give them a change of clothes in the morning, wash it during the day, and give them back the, the clean clothes in the evening. So yeah, now I it can met, be done. I met your parent coordinator. He's fantastic as well. Now, City uh, 60 Minutes did a whole uh, episode on your school and interviewed, um, I think, a kid, a student at the school who had had a really traumatic um, trip to the yeah. United States where they had to cross a river and he, his mother almost drowned and, and also interviewed your principal. Um, yeah. How did you make that connection or how did 60 Minutes make that connection? Do you know? So, yeah, actually, I, I had to uh, ask and find out about that at some point because it was, uh, and I didn't know, it was actually the our city council member uh, for our uh, the district where the school is, is uh, council member Sean Abreu, 
who had been also involved uh, on, on in the beginning weeks when these kids arrived last August, uh, just as had our school. And sort of they, they, the council member's office was approached by CBS News and they wanted to do a story on, on, on what he was doing. And then it immediately spilled over into what the school was doing. And so the school spoke, I think the parent coordinator, uh, he's actually now the community coordinator. He only takes care of uh, students who are uh, refugees. And we have a new parent coordinator who's responsible for all the other existing students' needs. So it's very helpful. Um, but, uh, so that's you have two parent coordinators now. Yeah, there's a, there's, a new, there's a position that exists in some schools called a community coordinator. And community public schools, which are generally Title I schools, it, if they have the budget, are able to hire into this position. So, yes, we have one parent coordinator uh, and one community coordinator. Both of them are native Spanish speakers. This is very helpful. And both of them are lovely and loving people. And so um, most recently, you put together a spreadsheet with information that is not necessarily publicly available, showing how many schools have gotten approximately how many refugee students. I think it shows about 600 schools with about 12,000 students that are getting some funding from the DOE to provide supportive services for these students. Can you explain how you figured this out? Um, because this information is not publicly available on the DOE website, how much these schools are receiving and whether you think this is sufficient to meet the needs of these students and these their families? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, all of the information is open source, meaning that it is publicly available, but it's not assembled in a way that's easily uh, digested. So uh, on different sources on the web, there are uh, information about all of our schools, uh, then separately, there's another place on the web where there's information about the language programs in our schools. And then finally, in, the, in every single school school budget, there is allocations for uh, Project Open Arms, which is the uh, overarching uh, term for uh, interagency collaboration in the city uh, to get funding to schools that have more than a certain amount of refugees. So I compiled it together. My background is uh, computer science. So this is something that 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 I that I spent about a day working on, and it updates regularly. But I see now that as of February 28th, there's funding available for 12,167 uh, open arms students in our schools, and 599 schools are hosting kids. This only accounts for schools that have more than five students in them. But uh, that 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 was something that that gives me as a school board member. As a parent volunteer who might just be working on this uh, with other community organizations, a level of transparency and understanding of where the needs are and, and how, how to best help specific schools. But in terms of your analysis of whether this is sufficient, what's, what are your thoughts on that? So clearly the city had not been ready for this. I don't think any city can possibly have been ready for a sudden arrival of tens of thousands of new families and then... I would estimate probably 14,000 students now in the system. Uh, there's the, the, one of the initial things we asked of the city when this started in uh, August and September was to make sure to send the students to schools that have Spanish language instruction of some sort, uh, whether it's a dual language immersive program, uh, transitional bilingual program. These are all specific types of Spanish language instruction. But what it does mean is that in the school, there's, there are certified teachers uh, with the uh, with the ability to 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 teach to uh, students who don't speak English and fluently in Spanish, so that they're immediately comfortable at least part of their school day. 
what I see in the analysis is that about 50% of the kids are in schools that don't have any Spanish teaching and learning programs or any multilingual programs at all. And this might be just because that we've saturated the existing schools already with students. And, and also it could be, and I think it is, that the, the shelters and the hotels where families are staying are just not conveniently located to the schools that have these language programs. So that's sort of my number one concern still. And multilingualism as an international person myself, someone who came from another country and is speaking multiple languages, I've been pushing for as something that New York City should have been focusing on for decades uh, in a much more serious and comprehensive way than they have done so far. Uh, I'm happy to report that there's a lot of agreement with that and buy-in and speaking with different superintendents so that we're working on that uh, actively now. The so other that's... issue, yeah, there's another issue, which is the main source of funding for staffing at many schools, if not most schools in New York City, is something called our fair student funding system. Yeah. And that's supposed to allocate more money if you have higher need students. And the, the, the change that it's made that I don't think is going to kick in until next year, but anyway, it's been recognized that homeless students obviously need more support and obviously refugee students need more support so that they're, these schools are getting a certain amount of money per student. I think it's $2,000 per student. Is that right? Yeah. Through the so, project open arms, but no extra money through fair student funding. And can you explain why? So. The system is not, again, built as uh, the, the New York City public school system to, to be responsive so suddenly to, to changes. So the one mechanism is school allocation memorandums, uh, and this Project Open Arms is one of them where they're trying to count and, and dynamically, regularly, about every two or three weeks, update the amount of kids in school that are getting $2,000 per head for the student. But if you look at the fair student funding formula and how much money would be given to a student with this combination of needs, including uh, living in temporary housing, it, it would allocate to those students uh, at least six, $7,000 per, per student. Um, but the normal budget cycle in New York City Public Schools closes counting new arrivals on October 31st. Most of the students that have arrived in the system arrived after October 31st. So they are stuck in schools that only get $2,000 per head with a little bit of delay, but hopefully it's getting there. And uh, to get the increased fair student funding that was passed independent of the arrival of asylum seekers, they'll have to wait until next fall uh, if and when the, the panel for education policy passes these changes, which I hope we will. There's no controversy on that. So and you also mentioned to me previously that there was a concern that if they moved from one shelter to another shelter, they might yeah. not be the new school might not be getting this funding. Because so it's only for newly enrolled students who are home homeless. Is that right? Yeah. So one of the complaints I got from schools when I approached different uh, parent coordinators and principals was they have received significantly more students recently than the, the funding uh, of Open Arms shows. Uh, a difference between, let's say, 30 kids are being funded, but there are 100 kids in the school that are in this asylum seeker category. So they're only getting, uh, let's say, $60,000 versus the 200000 that they should be getting. And our initial investigations into this are showing that probably that shelter movements are leaving that funding behind in, early, in a school that they might have been enrolled in, in another borough maybe. And because of the nature of where hotels are located in New York City, uh, there's a large concentration of families now living in Midtown Manhattan and near the two airports. 
So this wasn't the case when they initially arrived and they've been consolidated. So there might be money left back in the other schools. Uh, I have a little bit more research to do on that topic. So hopefully we can address that need. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a problem. I'm going to put a link to the spreadsheet that Navid has um, put together in the resources section of the podcast in WBI. So you can take a look at what it says about your school. Um, I'm also going to put a link to a new article about the, the issues at your school due to overcrowding and the fact that um, you're looking for additional space for the students. Um, this is Leonie Hameson on Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. I've been talking to Navid Hassan, a public school parent a, and an advocate for the thousands of refugee families and students that have recently arrived in our city and enrolled in their schools. Um, Navid, can you stick around a little bit? Absolutely. Thank you, Lenny. Okay. So now I'd like to switch gears and bring in Cassie Cresswell. Cassie is a Chicago parent activist and the executive director of Illinois Families for Public Schools. Thanks for joining us, Cassie. I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Lenny. So Chicago has just had a fascinating primary for mayor. I think it's one of the most interesting elections as an education advocate and, and interested in public schools of any election I've ever seen in my lifetime. Um, can you explain who was running for mayor and who were the top two candidates to face each other in the runoff um, coming up in April? Uh, yes, yeah, so Chicago doesn't have um, uh, partisan municipal elections. And really, after uh, the historic 1983 election of Harold Washington, the uh, primary system was changed to this nonpartisan version where if no one gets 50% or more, uh, or 50% plus one vote, then there has to be a runoff. Um, and so it's not exactly a primary, but there were a ton of candidates. There was nine candidates, including the incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot, um, Chewy Garcia, who's a congressman um, who has uh, run for mayor before. He stepped in when CTU President Karen Lewis became sick when she was running uh, back in the 2015 race um, and actually pushed the then mayor Rahm Emanuel into a runoff, which was unexpected at the time. Um, another perennial candidate in Illinois politics, uh, Paul Ballas, Cook County Commissioner and CTU organizer Brandon Johnson. Those were the two that ended up uh, in uh, the runoff. And then there were five other Black candidates. Um, so uh, really only one white candidate, one Latino candidate, and uh, uh, seven Black candidates. So that really it had the potential to, to split the Black vote. So it was very, uh, made the whole thing even more uncertain what was going to happen. Um, and uh, this, you know, so it was a very big field. I think it was pretty clear from polling that Paul Vallis was going to make it into the runoff. Um, he really consolidated the very conservative vote on the northwest and southwest sides of the city where there's a lot of city workers, especially police and firemen, um, who have to live in the city, uh, for, uh, and have residency. Um, so they're kind of concentrated there and he kind of locked down that vote. Um, and then, the more progressive vote was split across a few candidates. Um, uh, Commissioner Brandon Johnson really started out with not that much name recognition back in the fall, but he gained a lot of momentum 
Um, I think there's a perception that Chuy Garcia wasn't really capitalizing on his name recognition and he didn't do as well as people thought he would. Um, and so we came to February 28th and now we have, uh, Paul Ballas versus Brandon Johnson, essentially, you know, former CPS school management, uh, versus someone who has been a longtime organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union. So Paul Vallis is sort of well known in the education community because not only was he the CEO of Chicago Public Schools, but also Philadelphia, Bridgeport, the Recovery School District of Louisiana. Um, and, and he's been known to be somewhat of a corporate reformer or privatizer. And then you have Brandon Johnson, who is, as we said, a former public school teacher and union organizer. And more recently, I think the commissioner of Cook County, um, they have dramatically different backgrounds and records. Uh, on the Vallis campaign website, which I looked at earlier uh, today, he claims that Chicago schools improved under his leadership, that he built a lot of new schools. He didn't close any in contrast to former Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who they think had his political reputation destroyed by closing 50 schools at one one year. Um, yet critics say he helped create Chicago schools' current financial problems by not paying into the teacher pension system when he was CEO, and that he laid the groundwork that ultimately led to the closing of a lot of Black and Latino schools. What's your view? Um, so really, I would say that Paul Vallis certainly paved the way for the fiscal issues in the district. Um, due to one of his ways of balancing the budget, uh, back when he started as district CEO, um, was basically not making pension payments, um, and instead using that money in the operating budget. Um, and, you know, the effects of that did not kick in until after he left in 2001, but we're certainly still seeing the effects of that today. Um, and, as well as that, you know, he kicked off that era of school reform in Chicago. So charter schools open started opening under Paul Vallis. Um, and he also was really, you know, the architect of attaching high stakes, uh, attached standardized test scores to punish schools, um, the policy of holding students back based on test scores, uh, began in that era as well under Paul Vallis. Um, and, you know, that the the legacy of all those policies, you know, lasted for many years, even though the actual school closings um, and the really ramping up of new charter schools didn't all take place during his tenure. And Brandon Johnson, uh, what's his background as a teacher and an organizer for the CTU? Some people um, say still on the payroll of the CTU. Is that right? Uh, yeah, so Cook County Commissioner is not a full-time, uh, job. I mean, actually, even like state legislators in, uh, Illinois are not full-time positions. Um, so Cook County is the second biggest county in the U.S. It's got a $9 billion budget. It's got 17 commissioners. Um, so it's a, a serious elected official job. Um, but it, I think Brandon still is holding a, uh, position of the CTU organizer. Um, I'm not, do not quote me on that though. Um, so, uh, Brandon Johnson was a teacher in CTU or in Chicago Public Schools for a long time. Then he started, 
uh, as an organizer around the time of the teachers' strike in 2012, which is really a historic uh, a strike um, under like very early Rahm Emanuel administration. Um, and then he was one of the primary organizers fighting these school closings that year, 2012 to 2013, under the, uh, when the mass school closings happened. Um, was he someone that you were aware of back then? Did he have a public posture like that you knew about him or he just sort of was a behind the scenes guy? Um, I would say more behind the scenes. I mean, that was sort of like the very earliest time that I was began, you know, working on issues, uh, like public ed issues bigger than just my own child's school. Um, so testing and, uh, working on the school closings. And so I, I wasn't really aware necessarily who was doing what at CTU at that point. Um, so, so in terms of their, uh, uh, education agendas, I looked at Vallis's campaign website and he said he wants to drive more funding to schools so that the local school council, which is sort of like our school leadership teams, can decide how to spend the money. He even mentions class size, that they could spend the money on lowering class size. But he also mentions that he wants to increase the cap on charters and increase the number of co-located charters. But I was confused about that because I thought there was a moratorium on opening up more charter schools and a freeze in their enrollment in Chicago. What, what's the story on that? Um, yes, there, there has been a long time moratorium, um, not long, like for the last two teachers contracts. It is set in place for sure, um, through 2024, but the next mayor will be negotiating a contract with CTU. So that could be changed under that. Um, and I mean, Really, I think Paul Vallis is recycling a remarkable amount of the policies that he uh, was implementing a quarter century ago. I think that's kind of the a fascinating aspect of his campaign platform. Um, you know, longer school day and year, back to basics curriculum, attach high stakes to test scores, chop central office uh, costs. Uh, his idea that he wants to give local school councils more power is certainly surprising because he really did a lot um, as CEO to try to weaken councils in conjunction with uh, Mayor Daly at the time. Um, and one thing that he doesn't mention on his website, but he's certainly told local media and put in candidate questionnaires, is that he supports vouchers. Um, we already have a state voucher program here in Illinois that is due to sunset, um, even though people are lobbying to continue it. Um, and he actually has talked about creating a city voucher program that would use tax increment financing, um, which doesn't, none of that actually really makes any sense, even if you support vouchers or tax increment financing districts. Um, but I think the, you know, the logic and rationality of, of Paul Vallis's policy uh, issues has always been a shortcoming. Um, one thing also that, you know, it's not highlighted on his website, but the truth is he spent a lot of the last two years uh, with some really far-right extremist groups here in Illinois. Um, 
Last summer, he was on a panel with uh, Corey DeAngelis, who works for Betsy DeVos, um, and another parent leader from Parents Defending Education, a really uh, extremist parent group, uh, national parent group. This is an event held by a group called Awake Illinois. Um, this is a group that's essentially been absorbed by Moms for Liberty here in Illinois, um, and they're essentially like the, the local version of Moms for Liberty. They're known for their just absolutely hateful rhetoric on anything uh, LGBTQ plus inclusivity at schools, at libraries. They were working in conjunction with Proud Boys to push book bans. Um, and so Vallis denounced Awake after this was pointed out, uh, and he was on that panel, but he did mention that, you know, he did denouncing that he was working with someone from, you know, Betsy DeVos's organization. Uh, and the truth was he'd done several events with Awake Illinois for, for you know, a couple of years, and somehow it didn't come up, uh, and he didn't notice their transphobia and homophobia. So that's really uh, a, a component of his education agenda that I think you wouldn't expect from a centrist Democrat. So in other words, he combines the worst aspects of the corporate reform movement, which has sort of, you know, died out over time because it clearly did not work to improve our schools and the new wave of virulent extreme right-wing backlash against teaching race, allowing gender expression in schools, book bans, all the rest that we've seen uh, since Donald Trump. So he's the worst of, worst of both worlds, it sounds like. That's, that's basically true. There's like the whole passage that's been circulating on social media and media uh, where he is, you know, discussing CRT and how we shouldn't shouldn't be talking about racial injustice and we shouldn't be teaching kids about uh, the true racial history of the U.S. Um, and it's it's kind of jaw-dropping that, that someone like that is on the ballot in Chicago, frankly. So what about Brandon Johnson's education agenda? One thing I noticed is that he has a critique of their student-based budgeting program, which he pointed out problems similar to those we have with our fair student funding program in New York City, especially in under-enrolled schools. It has a devastating impact, um, contributed to principals whose budgets are strapped to have to choose between keeping a veteran teacher or having a librarian in a functioning library. Schools struggling with enrollment need to have a process by which resources are deployed to ensure that students still have a rich education. So that's some happening, I guess, in Chicago and in New York City with decline in overall enrollment, that our budget, school budget systems aren't really um, enough, sufficient to really uh, ensure that kids are getting a quality education. Is that right? Yes, we have what's, yeah, that's student-based budgeting, SBB, um, that was put into place under Rahm Emanuel. And in combination with a system of school choice or a portfolio district, um, it is especially devastating because you can just essentially very quickly get into a negative cycle where you don't have enough funds to pay for the kind of stuff that attracts students and you lose more students and you'll never actually be able to re-leverage any kind of programming that would attract more students. Um, and so you continue to shrink uh, and it's, you know, a, a way to really starve schools um, and make it prevents schools from actually having the basics that every school should have to function. And also 
uh, actually have the, the things that a school needs to serve the actual population that comes in the doors. So English language learners, special education students, low-income students, homeless students, um, and you can really be left with just the most bare bones. Um, uh, really, I would say Brenna Johnson's education agenda is, you know, similar to what the, the teachers union's agenda has been for, you know, the last decade and uh, what community organizations who've been trying to push for well-resourced neighborhood schools for every kid in the district uh, have also been organizing for. Um, and so, you know, the idea that you have to essentially compete as a child to get into a school that's going to have what you need, um, that is a really, that's just like the opposite of what equity is. Um, and so, you know, the idea that actually every school should have a nurse and a librarian and a social worker and sufficient resources to serve the, the population, that is kind of the, the core of his platform. Um, there's also some uh, some things in education platform that overlap with issues like transportation and housing, uh, and those are actually, you know, very large part also education issues. Um, so uh, there's been an ordinance under consideration here in Chicago for a while to pass a real estate transaction uh, transaction tax. So expensive house sales would, a percentage of that would go to affordable housing and uh, combating homelessness. And there's been, you know, the Chicago Coalition for the Homeless, a whole lot of community orgs have been working on this for a long time. That's something that's part of the education platform as well uh, in Brandon Johnson's platform. So it's uh, more of a holistic thing than just what's happening in the schools. This is Lainey Hameson on Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org. I'm talking to Cassie Cresswell of Illinois Families for Public Schools and Navid Hassan, a parent advocate for um, immigrant and refugee students. Okay with you folks if I take some calls at this point. Yes, please. Callers, if you have comments or questions about the issue of refugee students in, and their families in New York City schools, or the Chicago mayoral race and education politics in Chicago. We have two experts with us on Talk Out of School. Please give us a call at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Please call with your questions and your concerns on those two issues. Cassie, um, Chicago was the first district to adopt mayoral control that I know of. And it's now phasing it out. Um, can you tell us how that happened and when you will return to a fully elected uh, school board? Um, yeah, so Chicago is kind of an interesting case because we've never actually had a fully elected school board here. It's always been mayoral appointed um, for like the first hundred plus years. The city council approved uh, the mayoral's mayor's appointments. Um, and then it turned to just a completely mayoral appointed board in 1995, um, uh, which coincided with the, the school reform act that was passed, which also created the position of a CEO to essentially allow Paul Ballas to serve as CEO because he was not an educator. Um, and it has been, you know, like I think very quickly people started organizing. It was certainly like ramped up by 
2006 that community orgs were pushing to get um, an elected school board. And so it was really a 15-year legislative and organizing fight. Um, it passed in May 2021, uh, but a fully elected board will not happen uh, for quite a while yet. Next fall, November 2024, we will elect um, basically half of a hybrid board, so 10 members of a 21-member school board. Um, and then the fully elected board won't be elected until November 2026 and seated in January 2027. Um, so there's a lot of transition time until then. Um, and, you know, it, it really just took years and years of fighting and organizing and um, getting some, uh, getting sufficient support in the legislature. Um, and there wasn't, there still was not support to actually create a fully elected board when, when the bill passed. And so that's why there's that extremely long, basically wait until the fully effective date. And will the representatives that are directly elected, will that be geographic or will they be citywide or how does that work? Um, there'll be, uh, at large board president that, uh, that one position and then the other first 10 and then 20 will be through geographical districts. So the, the boundaries haven't been set yet of those. So Navid, um, you, you've been also involved in trying to arrange, uh, for legal help for some of these families. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely not something out of my wheelhouse. So we, we immediately saw that these, uh, new arrivals would need, uh, legal services to process, to represent them in their, in their asylum cases. So actually, I, I definitely want to give a shout out to Project Russo. Uh, it's a nonprofit that has been instrumental in providing free legal services to all, all of the students at, at, at my son's school, PS145. And then recently I encountered, uh, NILAG which is also providing free legal uh, consultation sessions to uh, to refugees and asylum seekers. And this is really stretching resources thin. We're running out of pro bono legal services in the city. Uh, so if anyone knows any other lawyers that can represent uh, immigration-related cases, that's something to definitely get in touch with any of the people working on this throughout the city. Um, so that's, yeah. And is there something else that you wanted to bring up about this issue? Uh, about legal services, no, but I, I forgot to mention a few things in terms of what we, we still need regarding uh, services provided by the city or by uh, New York City public schools for our refugee students. So the one concern that we've been having for a few months now is that we really need to address interrupted formal education. So there is now uh, the kids have been in school for half a school year. And uh, they've settled down for their sort of uh, basic needs. And it's becoming clear that some students uh, who are only assigned by their year of birth into their grade are really out of place in the classes in which they sit, much more so than anyone that in the United States would normally be. Some kids have never been to school and they're placed in third, fourth and fifth grade. And this is causing significant amounts of difficulty at, at many, many schools. Uh, and there, there really hasn't been a coordinated effort along these lines. This is something I'm going to bring up at the next panel for educational policy meeting. Uh, probably the one most important thing. Uh, another issue that I forgot to mention is that a lot of the budget that, that comes with government organizations is very bureaucratic and rigidly set along budget lines. And even though there might be money allocated to a school, it becomes almost impossible to actually spend it in a manner that will help the, address the need. 
So having some more flexibility, and this is where fair student funding is a lot more flexible for schools to use than, than school allocation memoranda. Uh, having that flexibility would be an amazing thing for, for addressing a crisis. We saw this in public schools during COVID. There was just a mismatch between the bureaucratic budget and the immediate need to spend money to, to address students' problems. Uh, that has to be uh, alleviated. Can you give somewhere. an example of, of, of the sort of a rigid budget allocation requirement that is not yeah, serving absolutely, students? Absolutely. So open arms money is coming in, which is uh, roughly has to be spent in the same way as Title I school funding. And the school allocation memorandum prohibits use of that money for hiring full-time staff because that money will expire at the end of this fiscal year on June 30th, 2023. And there is no guarantee that that resource will be available next year. So you cannot hire a full-time staffer for that. You can use it for paying someone hourly overtime, but that is not a useful use of that money, even in the short term. It would be nice to be able to hire a counselor or a therapist that speaks Spanish at least just for a year, but uh, currently it's not allowed. So you, so principals who are used to this play different games with moving around budget items and needs and making it work, but it's it's hard to use it responsibly because of the way of government budgets are are are, are normally set up. Uh, that has to be sort of alleviated somehow. And so far, uh, I haven't seen movement on reducing bureaucracy. So, um, callers, again, we're offering you um, to call in. We're asking you to call in at two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. That's two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. Cassie, one thing that I'm really interested in is Arnie Duncan. So Arnie Duncan was the CEO at some point after Vallis, um, and then he went on to become the U.S. Uh, uh, Secretary of Education under uh, Obama. And now he's been back in Chicago for several years um, running an organization for youths to try to um, lower crime and get them involved in positive activities. I guess these are mostly out-of-school youth. Is that right? Um, what is he doing exactly in Chicago, and, and has he been commenting at all on the election, the mayoral election? Um, yeah, so Arnie Duncan was Chicago Public School CEO directly after Paul Vallis um, and uh, you know did a lot of the things we were talking about earlier in the show in terms of just massive privatization of the district through closing CPS schools and opening charters. Um, he, uh, there was a lot of speculation that he was actually going to run for mayor. Um, and then a year ago, March, 2022, he said he would not run. Um, and he's really, I think, been pretty quiet ever since. Uh, it will certainly be interesting to see what, um, whether he weighs in at some point in this race. Um, and, you know, whether he thinks wh which of these candidates are, you know, a better person to run the Chicago public schools, that would be really interesting to hear. Um, I think, you know, even Arnie Duncan of 2023 is probably not Arnie Duncan of 2001. Um, and, you know, certainly the shine of the sort of so-called school reform, aka school privatization policies, have become much less popular in the Democratic Party. Um, and things like vouchers were never that popular with the, the National Democratic Party and still, I think, are not. Um, and, 
that I think is, you know, a real thing that could happen here in Chicago, a, a clear policy difference uh, between Brandon Johnson and Paul Ballas. Um, and, you know, it's going to be, it, it's just an open question whether some of these more essentially centrist Democrats, the, the Democratic establishment in Chicago is going to weigh in in this election um, and who they will throw their money and endorsements behind. But the business community, um, by and large, that really was behind both Vallis and Arnie Duncan and some of the reform efforts that they introduced in the privatization, um, they have been supporting Paul Vallis. Isn't that right up till now and giving him money or not? Um, yes. I, he's gotten a lot of essentially establishment uh, political money. So, um, you know, from, say, finance and uh, people who were really behind charter support, um, this uh, guy in finance, Don Wilson, um, Jim Frank, who, you know, played a huge role in the charterization of Chicago. Um, and so, yes, but I would say that, like, you know, the, the usual suspects have shown up and said who they're giving their blessing to yet. So Arnie would be one of them or, you know, Rahm Emanuel. Um, or Obama himself. Is he back or, in Chicago yeah, say, or not? Um, there's been there's been no word from Barack Obama on the mayoral election. Um, and yeah, it, I don't know. Is he back in Chicago or is he still oh, living um, in D.C.? No, he's not. He's rarely here. Uh, there's a very large Obama Center being built on the south side. Um, but in a, in a public park, right? Around. Yeah, Is right in the, the middle of Jackson Park. Yes. <laughs> Talk about privatization, right? Yeah. Um, so, so if you had to give us, well, first of all, if you had to give us advice, I mean, part of the reason that you've gotten some progressive policies through in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, a hold on charter schools is is through the efforts of the union, but also you have a relatively progressive governor. Is that right? Who's who? It seems to be towing the line in a fairly progressive fashion on education. Is that right? Um. Yeah, I would say that. Like the the end of say like state level charter approval, really that got momentum, and I think past in the end, uh, maybe even before J.B. Pritzker became governor, um, or maybe just after. Uh, so that was sort of in the works through a lot of organizing, including the state-level teacher unions, Illinois Federation of Teachers, and the Illinois Education Association, especially played a big role in that. Um, both of our chambers uh, of our legislature now have... Uh, far more progressive leadership than they did for a very long time. Um, so, you know, we had a Democratic Senate president and Democratic Speaker of the House, but they were certainly weren't progressives. Um, so the combination of, you know, ever larger Democratic majorities and more progressive leadership in the legislature and um, a governor that I think is more progressive than people expected uh, 
has been helpful. I mean, the truth is we're still underfunding schools in Illinois massively in terms of state funding. Um, and uh, the, you know, there hasn't been an increase in state funding to the level that I would like to see as a public school advocate and a public school parent. Um, and the governor did sort of back off on his own opposition to vouchers just before the November election. So that was very concerning. Uh, and now it's not entirely clear where he stands on vouchers. This program here in Illinois should have sunset after five years. Um, it right now has a one-year extension. And so the legislature really has to vote this spring on whether to, if, if it's not going to die. Um, so that we will see how progressive everyone is. Um, and you know, the success or failure of a more progressive education agenda on the city level will, will certainly have a role in that. So Naveed Hassan and Cassie Cresswell, thank you so much for joining us tonight on Talk Out of School. I'll put a link to information about the Chicago mayoral race and also Naveed's spreadsheet showing the funding that's being given to schools with many refugee students, and also an article about uh, his school, PS145, that recently was published in the Columbia Spectator about some of the problems with overcrowding that already existed, but the refugee uh, influx has made worse, as well as a link to the 60-minute story. Naveed, how do New York City parents reach you if they have concerns or questions about some of these issues that we've been talking about tonight? So, Lanny, thank you so much. Uh, please feel free to add my email address to wherever you add these links. Uh, you have it, and uh, I'm happy to receive messages that way. Okay. And Cassie, do you want to give out your Twitter handle and the website of Illinois Families for Public Schools? Um, yes, we are on Twitter. We are IL underscore F as in families, B as in public, S as in schools. Um, and we are ILFPS.org on the web. And I'm at Cassie Cresswell on Twitter as well as myself. Definitely follow Cassie on Twitter. She's very active and very incisive on all the issues that matter as far as I'm concerned. Uh, this is Lainey Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio. Our show is also available as a podcast if you missed the live version. If you hear it through Apple, please leave a review. Also, please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. There's no other show on the air that deeply delves into the issues affecting our schools like this one. You can also contribute online at WBAI.org. We need the support of listeners like you to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run any ads. I'll be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. Until then, be careful, be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Thanks, Lanny. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study them hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. And the guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring. 
Hi there, I'm Max Schmid, staff representative on the WBAI local station board, inviting you to attend our next LSB meeting Wednesday, March 8th at 7 p.m. It will be held on Zoom, and it includes an opportunity for public comment. The fastest and easiest way to join the meeting is by using the link on the Pacifica calendar at kpftx.org or on the lower left-hand corner of the WBAI website, wbai.org. Just go to the red square labeled Meetings. You can also access the meeting on your phone by calling 929-205-6099. Again, that's 929-205-6099 and entering the meeting ID, 922-457-2995. Again, the meeting ID, 922-457-2995. And the password is 995, like our frequency, 99.5. So it's 995-995-99. Do you have to contribute to WBAI to access the meeting? No, but we sure hope that you do. And by the way, for $15 or more, you can become a BAI buddy this Women's History Month in the name of your favorite WBAI show. And you'll receive our Women's History Collection. Just go to give2wbai.org and click on Buddy. Or please call 212-209-2950 and say, I want to become a BAI buddy to help fund listener-sponsored WBAI radio. That's 212-209-2950. And remember, the next LSB meeting is this Wednesday, March 8th at 7 p.m. We hope to see you there. This is Dr. Ron Daniels, president of the Institute of the Black World 21st Century. April 19th through the 23rd, all roads lead to Baltimore, State of the Black World Conference 5. Organized around the theme, Global Africans Rising, Empowerment, Reparations, and Healing, to address eight major issue areas. Reimagining policing, gun violence, and fratricide, gentrification, environmental justice, water as a human right, socially responsible entrepreneurship, making black lives matter, the role of hip-hop in the black freedom struggle, and building the U.S. and global reparations movement. The who's who of black America and the pan-African world will be in Baltimore, April 19th to the 23rd, for one of the great gatherings of black people of the century. To check out the amazing program and take advantage of discount registration, go to the website, ibw21.org. That's ibw21.org. Extinction Diaries. A Yale study confirms that a mass extinction 66 million years ago included a steep drop in ocean pH levels, a clear sign the oceans were high in acidity, just like today. By studying the fossil remains of ancient plankton, scientists determined these and other marine animals with shells and skeletons from calcium carbonate were disproportionately wiped out in that extinction. The study suggests higher ocean acidity prevented these calcifiers from creating their shells. This means the first level of the ocean food chain, supporting the rest of the ecosystem, collapsed and triggered the mass extinction. Acidity in today's oceans have not been this high since tens of millions of years before modern man. Our 